Welcome to Practical Christian Living. We know that Peter, Andrew, James, and John all went back to the nets. They began following him, but they kind of went back to their, their nets. They didn't understand the complete and total call that God was giving them. They didn't understand the total life change that God was giving them. When we first commit and surrender our lives to Christ, the Bible tells us we are to count the cost. Likely, we do not understand completely what that means because it's a life-changing decision. The disciples didn't understand that their lives, their mission had changed forever once they responded to the call. They had no idea that they were called to turn this world upside down with an amazing and radical message. What is Jesus calling us to do? With Luke chapter 5, here's Robert Furrow. When Jesus meets for the very first time with Peter and calls him to be one of his disciples and eventually really the lead disciple, the chief disciple, every time you find the disciples listed in the Gospels, Peter is always the first and Judas is always the last. So that gives you an idea as to the role that God wanted Peter to play. A little bit later on, Paul would say of Peter that Peter was called to the Jews to bring the gospel to the Jews, and I, Paul, was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And that tells us something about God, by the way, because God called a Pharisee to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. I think of the meetings that I have and, and I think if God had a meeting about that first, he was like, you know what? We need to come up with someone to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm thinking about Paul. He's a Pharisee. I think it would be great. I could see a bunch of objections. I, I think that we shouldn't bring a Pharisee to the Gentiles. We ought to bring a Gentiles to the Gentiles. He's not going to be able to relate. They're not going to be able to understand. And so God said, no meetings. I'm just going to do it. That's what God does. And he chose Paul, a Pharisee, to reach the Gentiles and Peter to reach the Jews. And he had a plan for him. There was a significant role that he would play. And it happens in phases, which is interesting to me. He meets Jesus, and then he calls and leaves his nets, but then he goes back to them again. And it reminds me, in our relationship with Christ, that not all of us enter into that deep, profound, powerful relationship immediately. Sometimes it happens in phases. Sometimes we make a commitment and we begin to follow him and the Lord's like, I want you to walk closer to me. I've got more plans for you. I want you in the deeper waters. And then maybe we move out a little bit further and God goes, I want you to come a little further than you've come. That's what we find with Peter. And I think it's an example that even those that God brings into leadership Sometimes there are steps that you take until you find yourself where God wants you to be. You may see yourself right now and God says, I've got more. I want you in the deep. You're hanging out in the shallows, but I want you out in the deep now with me. I want you out there doing what I want you to do. So the first time I want to cover the first couple of times Jesus meets Peter. And then we're going to look at Luke five, which is the big one. The first time that he met him was in John chapter 1, and I want to read this to you. It's verses 40 and 42. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And two disciples that were with John 
began to follow Jesus. And they even followed him kind of creepy. They were kind of at a distance following him. And I see Jesus looking back and seeing him and continuing to walk and looking back. And finally, Jesus says, what do you want? And they go, where are you staying? And I figured that just didn't know what else to say. Where are you staying? He said, well, come and see. And he began a relationship with these guys. So one of the first two who saw them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We're going to learn later on that James, John, the sons of Zebedee, and Andrew and Peter were partners in a fishing company. So Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, was one of the first ones, and he first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is called the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, and you will be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. He doesn't say to him, you are Simon, and from now on you are Petra. Petra means bedrock. He used the word Peter. It was a different word. It means rock. I heard someone say one time, it doesn't mean Petra, which is bedrock, but it means Peter, which is pebble. No longer are you Simon, but you're a little bitty pebble. That's not what he was saying. He was saying to him, I have something significant for you. You are Simon, but now you are a rock. He had a significant role for Peter to play, and he wanted him to know that. And I believe that when God calls us, he gives us a little glimpse of what he wants from us. I believe that he shares with us what he wants. When I first committed my life to the Lord at 14 years old, more and more I wanted to become a pastor. I didn't know how it was going to work. I didn't know what paths it was going to take. I don't know that I believed it would happen, but I found a desire. It was as if Jesus said, well, Robert, I'm going to call you. I'm going to do this in your life. And so he said, from now on, you're rock. That's who you are. You're rocky. And then a little bit later on, we're told in Matthew 4, 18 and 20, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he'd already met Peter at this point, already changed his name. As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Well, that sounds like the call and the following, doesn't it? It sounds like they were working on their nets. Jesus said, come and follow me. And they were like, okay, there we are. And they followed him. I think of that passage as I think of the passage for the call of Matthew. Jesus walked up to the tax collector's table and a tax collector is an unlikely person to call, by the way. And Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew left the table and followed Jesus. But that's not what happened here. We know that Peter, Andrew, James, and John all went back to the nets. They began following him, but they kind of went back to their, their nets. They didn't understand the complete and total call that God was giving them. He, they didn't understand the total life change that God was giving them. That they were to follow him and to minister for the next three years and then be used by God in powerful ways even after that. And so a little bit later on in Luke chapter four, we see that Jesus is invited over to Peter's house and Peter is married and he's got a mother-in-law and his mother-in-law is sick. And it says that they asked him to heal the mother-in-law. I love that Jesus didn't just come in and go, oh, she's sick, let me go out of here. But he waited for them to ask because the Bible says that ask and you shall receive 
And so when they asked him, they adjured him. They said, would you please heal her? The Bible says Jesus rebuked the fever and it left. Have you ever noticed that Jesus, Jesus never prayed for something to be, happen to somebody? He touched people and the leprosy was gone. He rebuked the fever and they left. He rebuked the sickness and it left. Even when he brought Lazarus out of the grave, he prays before that, but he says, Father, you know all things. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. He doesn't say, I pray to you now that Lazarus, he in his own authority does everything in his own authority. Take up your bed and walk, he said to a lame man. The blind man, he, he spit in his eyes, rubbed mud in it and said, go wash out your eyes. And the blind man said, no problem. And went to wash out the spit and the mud and could see when it was done. Jesus can rebuke fevers right now because we serve the same Jesus. So Peter had met Jesus, had his name changed, had left his nets at one point and then gone back to them. Now has had Jesus in his house and he has healed his own mother-in-law. And the Bible says she immediately got up and began to serve them. Now we pick it up in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It says, so it was as the multitudes pressed around him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake Gennesaret. Gennesaret means violin, and from certain vantage points, the Sea of Galilee looks like a violin. But this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Tiberias. It's called all three in the New Testament, Gennesaret, Galilee, and Tiberias. Notice that people were pressing in around him to hear him. This is early in his ministry. The people of Galilee are pressing in. It reminds me of the prophecy that says, the people who live in Galilee will see a great light. Those who live in darkness will have a light shine upon them. Jesus began his ministry in an unlikely place. Jesus uses unlikely people. Jesus works in unlikely ways. We need to get used to that because we often think, I know what I would do if I were God. Well, it doesn't matter because he works in unlikely ways and he uses unlikely people. And that is the case that we have here in this text. And so then Jesus had said of this area that he, the people who's going to minister to, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, which means the Messiah, to preach the gospel to the poor, to the physical poor, financially poor, and to the poor in spirit. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted today? Have you lost someone? Has your life taken a turn that was unexpected and you just find that you're brokenhearted? The Bible says that God is near to those that have a broken heart. He knows what you're going through. He says, God has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you feel trapped? Do you feel like a captive? He proclaims liberty to the captives. Maybe you've been captive by some kind of addiction. Maybe you've been held captive by something in your life that you can't seem to break. But Jesus has come to set captives free and recover sight to the blind, not only the physically blind, but those who are blind to real, true spiritual things and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Maybe you're oppressed by someone. Maybe you're oppressed by a demonic spirit. Jesus came to set them free and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the ministry he was doing. And they were all crowded around him. And verse two, it says, and so he saw two boats standing by the lake. But if the fishermen had gone from them and they were washing their nets. Now he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitude from the boat. 
We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Sermon in the Valley in the book of Luke, but we don't ever have the Sermon from the boat. I wish we did, just because I would want to hear it. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let the nets down for a catch. Notice a couple things there. Number one, he said, launch out into the deep, let the nets down. Earlier, it said they were washing their nets. Peter could have easily said, this is how I think. I just washed all those nets. I've been up all night fishing and you want me to let the nets down again, get them dirty? Let down your nets, not singular, but plural, for a catch. He didn't say, let down your nets and let's see what happens. He didn't say to Peter, grab your nets, let's go fishing. He said, let down your nets for a catch. There is no way after Jesus, the word of God, said, let down your nets for a catch, that they weren't going to catch fish because Jesus said it. It reminds me of when Jesus said to the disciples, get in the boat and let's go to the other side. And in the middle of the lake, a storm arose and Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat. Do you remember that? And they woke Jesus up and Peter said to Jesus, of course it's Peter. Peter said to Jesus, don't you care we're perishing? And Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. And he's calmed the wind and the waves, but he didn't call him little faith because he didn't calm the wind and waves. He called him, oh, you of little faith, because Jesus said, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. And he thought that they were going to perish. When Jesus says, we're going to the other side, you're not going to go under. When Jesus says, put the nets down for a catch, it's not going to come up empty. Do you trust every word that God gives you? Do you trust every single word? His word is faithful. His word is true. His word is complete. And he promised you that if you would do what is in his word, then you would see God move in incredible ways. And I think that one of the enemy's main plans is to make the word of God seem like it is not relevant, that it is not meaningful, that it's not really going to help me. But I'm telling you, there is nothing that will help you in this world like God's word. There is nothing like trusting in what God has said in circumstances and in situations to follow the word of God. And so Peter responds, Peter answered, verse five, and said to him, master. And to me, that almost sounds a little condescending because of the rest of the sentence. Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. In other words, you're a preacher and I'm a fisherman. Let me fish and you preach, all right? I know what I'm doing. And Peter did. He spent his whole life on those waters. He knew those fish. He knew when they, when they would be caught and when they couldn't be caught. But then he says this, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Was that complete obedience, I wonder? I might be in the realm of speculation now, but Jesus said, let down the nets. And Peter says, at your word, I'll let a net down. And that's the way it reads. That's what it is in the Greek. I looked it up. I wonder if we partially obey God's word because we don't really believe it. Let down your nets for a catch. Eh, oh, well, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down a net. Huh. I wonder if we have a lack of faith like that. That's just a small amount of faith, but it is faith. He did let down a net. It is faith, but it's not much. What if he would have said, let's get all the nets? And you know what? You other guys come with us. Let's throw down some nets. Jesus said, we're going to get a catch. Let's get a catch. But he didn't do that. It reminds me, and this is the analogy that I use. The Bible says through faith, the children of Israel kept the Passover. You remember what the Passover was? 
The death angel was going to pass through Egypt and kill all of the firstborn in Egypt. And it wasn't going to discriminate between Egyptians and Hebrews. If you wanted that death angel to pass over your house and not kill your firstborn, you had to keep a lamb with you for a while. You had to kill that lamb and have a Passover meal where you ate that lamb. You had to smear the blood of the lamb around your doorpost. So I imagine two neighbors, one of them kind of thinking, this sounds dumb. I'm going to smear blood on my doorpost and the death angel's going to pass over. Not understanding it. We understand that the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus and that he died on the cross for us as our Passover lamb. And when we apply the blood of Christ into our lives, we are forgiven for our sins. So we see the picture. This guy wouldn't have seen it. He might have said, you know, that sounds dumb to me. And I don't even think my firstborn's going to die. I don't think the death angel is going to come over and take my firstborn. Wouldn't be the first time somebody uh, didn't believe what God said, right? And on top of that, I kind of like this lamb. He's become a pet. Lammy. Little, you want me to kill little Lammy? My kids like Lammy. Everybody likes Lammy. You want me to slaughter Lammy? And on top of that, we're not only going to eat Lammy, but we're going to smear his blood on the doorpost. That's kind of gross. But then he says, but I kind of like my firstborn. I guess I'll do it. And so he kills the lamb, drains the blood, prepares the meal, has the meal. And afterwards, even maybe with a little bit of frustration, maybe a little bit of like just doubt, like this isn't going to work. I can't believe I'm doing this. He smears the blood on the doors. But he's got a neighbor. This neighbor has a little different attitude. This neighbor says, God said there's a death angel coming. And I got this lamb I've had in my house for a while. And we're going to eat it tonight. And I'm going to smear the blood on this door because I want to protect my son. And so he kills that lamb and he smears that blood on those doorposts. And he knows as he does that I'm saving the life of my son because I'm being obedient to God because a death angel is on his way. One of them had great confidence. The other one barely had any confidence at all and almost didn't do it. Which one of these two men had their firstborn saved? Both of them. See, sometimes we think if we don't have confidence and and we almost aren't doing God's word and then we do it, we're really not going to see much happen. That's why Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you're going to see mountains removed because it's not about your confidence. It's not about whether or not you struggle with believing it. It's whether or not you do it. When you have faith, you make a choice to do it. Even if you doubt, even if you struggle, when you do it, that is faith. And both of them did it and both of them had it. And so Peter lets down his net. And it says and when they had done this, verse six, they caught a great number of fish and their nets, singular, was breaking. It's almost like Jesus said, I told you nets. (laughs) You put down a net. And they signaled to their partners on the other boat who came to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. So many fish were caught in this net that it filled both boats. We know that Peter's boat was large enough to take all 12 of the disciples. They've calculated how many fish it would be to have these boats sink. And it would at least be four tons, but somewhere between four and five tons of fish. That's a lot of fish. They filled the boats up. And when they had filled both boats up and they were beginning to sink, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees 
saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Earlier he had said, Master, I think, with a little master. I fished all night, caught nothing. And he didn't let down all the nets. And so Simon Peter says to him, Leave me. I'm a sinful man. But what he doesn't know is that that's exactly the kind of person that God wants to use. Jesus said, a doctor doesn't go to the well, but he goes to the sick. And the Son of Man hasn't come to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. Peter is the exact kind of person that God wants to use. You might not see yourself as a religious person. You might not see yourself as a person that God would want to use. But you've got to understand that when God is looking for people to use, he's not going to the religious people. He's going to the sinners. And he's redeeming them and he's saving them and he's using them. And who knows what God has planned for you. Maybe you've had some interaction with Jesus. Maybe you've even had him say to you, leave your nets and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But you still haven't gone off into the deep end. And this is what Peter learned. God really knows what he's doing. And when God's calling you, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants from you and he knows what he wants to do. And Peter should have said, come closer to me. I'm a sinful man. Lord, you receive us even though we have a sin nature. Trust me, I wish we didn't. I wish I didn't. I wish you didn't. But we have a sin nature. But God calls us in spite of that and uses us in spite of that. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with him. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. It's time for you to do the work that I've called you to do. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Isn't that great? They finally forsook all. They had left their nets behind at one time, but they came back to them. What did they forsake? All those fish. Enough fish to sink two fishing boats. I wonder what that volume of fish would have been. Enough fish to sink these boats would have been enough to set them up financially but they forsook it all and they followed him. And I wonder what kind of call God might have on your life today. I wonder what God wants you to do. See, God doesn't ask everyone to leave everything and go. There was a man who came to Jesus and said to him, I'll follow you. Jesus had healed him. And he said, I want to follow you everywhere you go. There was another leper who told him, I want to follow you where you want to go. There was a man in Gennesaret who had been delivered from a demon. And he said, I want to follow you now. And Jesus said to all of them, no. Go and tell people what God has done for you. We just want to do what God wants us to do. If God wants us to go somewhere, we'll go where he wants us to go. We'll do what he wants us to do. When I came back to the Lord at 19 years old, I remember saying to him, Lord, if you want me to preach to five people, I'll preach to five. You want me to preach to thousands, I'll preach to thousands. Now in my heart, I was going, could it be thousands, God, and not five? <laughs> but I really meant it. Here recently, a couple years ago, the Lord spoke to my heart again. You prayed that prayer when you were younger, but do you mean it now? Will you do whatever I asked you to do now? Uh, he's not asking me to leave as far as I know, by the way. But I find myself again reevaluating what we're doing here and saying, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Will you say to him today, whatever you want, I'll forsake whatever. I'll share with the people here. I'll do what you want me to do. Because what I do know about you as Christians is that God has a plan, God has a call, God has a purpose for you. 
if you would say to him today at the end of this message, Lord, I give you everything. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.